This podcast is brought to you by New Hope Baptist Church. For more information, visit the website newhope.net.au or follow us on social media. Parables. Some are like finely crafted puzzles. Others are so beautiful they make you want to cry. And then there are those that will give you whiplash. This is one of those parables. So brace yourself as we listen to the parable of the dishonest manager from Luke's Gospel. The book of Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 to 9. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is Jesus' most difficult and bewildering parable. The story of the parable is pretty straightforward. There's a rich man who owns a bunch of land and he rents the land out to some tenants. These tenants are probably farming land their grandparents once owned but had to sell to the rich man after a run of bad harvests and mounting debts. And now these families give the rich man perhaps half of the harvest they produce each year as rent. And just like their grandparents, there are good years and there are bad years. And then there are the years that will break a person, like when the crops fail and there's no income to pay the rent and no seeds left to replant. And they have to borrow money because, my goodness, what else can they do? And over time, gradually, the debts the tenants owe in rental arrears and interest begin to add up. The rich man employs a manager to act on his behalf and to collect the rent from the tenants. So far, so straightforward. But someone tells the rich man up in town that his manager is ripping him off. And so the rich man calls the manager into his office and he sacks him right there on the spot. The manager obviously didn't see this coming and he doesn't have a plan B. But he realises that he has this small window of opportunity in which to salvage something good from a bad situation. The manager knows it will take a little while for the news of his sacking to become widely known. So before the word gets out, the manager calls in some of the tenants and he asks them how much they owe. 
and then he takes his red pen and he slashes their debts. The size of the debt reduction is huge. That amount of olive oil would have represented the entire annual yield of a very, very large olive grove. Similarly, the wheat represents rent for almost 100 acres of land. So we're talking about a lot of money getting wiped off the rich man's balance sheet in the stroke of a pen. And you would think that the rich man who finds out about what his former manager has done would be even more angry than he probably already was. But he's not. You'd think that he might even cry foul, telling the tenants that, well, the manager wasn't even his manager when the debts got forgiven, so therefore his actions were invalid and the debts still stand. But he doesn't. What he does do is congratulate the manager on being so incredibly shrewd. And what's so shrewd about what the manager did is that he finds a way to strike a win-win-win deal. A deal that directly benefits the man's tenants because they get their debts massively reduced. But a deal that also enhances the rich man's relationship with his tenants, as ultimately he's the one who gets the credit because the tenants will assume that it was him who instructed and authorised the debts to be forgiven in the first place. And a deal that creates a debt of reciprocity between the manager and a large group of people in his local community. Remember what the manager's key concern was after he got sacked? In verse 4 he says, I've decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. See, he's concerned that the people he's worked with and lived alongside will welcome him, that they'll still receive him as a person with whom they want to have a valued relationship. So we have this incredibly unusual situation where a win-win-win deal gets struck by a manager whose motivation is entirely self-interested and whose methods are completely dishonest. And my first response is that while the deal might deliver something to all the parties, I object to the means by which it was struck. I mean, surely we can't endorse dishonesty as a justifiable means to an end. And I don't know about you, but sacking someone for stealing from me only to have them double down and steal from me again? That would have me calling the police, not praising the thief. And I'd make sure that I got back what was stolen from me too. While the selfish motivation of the manager is entirely unremarkable, I can't help but notice that the manager didn't think he was running much of a risk. I mean, he didn't even hesitate to do what he did. I wonder why is that? Well, I think he didn't hesitate because he knew his master. He'd worked for him for many years and over all of that time, the rich man had demonstrated that he was a gracious and a merciful man. And it's this history, this expectation he was relying on. You could go so far as to say that the manager risked everything he had on the grace and the mercy of the rich man. So no wonder the rich man praises the manager for being so shrewd. 
He makes a deal that benefits him and his neighbours by leveraging the character of the rich man. And what's amazing about this parable is that it's the shrewdness of the manager, not the character of the rich man, that Jesus says we should emulate. And I find that kind of shocking and hard to reconcile with things like, well, the Ten Commandments, where coveting your neighbor's ox or donkey is a no-no. But here Jesus says it's okay if we give away dishonest wealth in order to make friends. Did you catch what Jesus says there? He says we should give away dishonest wealth. What did the manager actually give away? He didn't reach into his own pocket and pull out his wallet in order to wipe the tenant's debt off, did he? No, he reached for the rich man's balance sheet. It's the rich man's money he gives away. Therefore, it's the rich man's wealth Jesus names as dishonest. The translation dishonest wealth isn't actually a very good one. A better translation would be unrighteous wealth or the riches of injustice. So Jesus really says, make friends for yourselves by using the riches of injustice. And by the riches of injustice, I think Jesus is talking about money derived from an economic system in which the tenant farmers were dispossessed of their land, then had their economic debts multiplied through things like interest to such a level that there was no hope for them ever to get out of underneath the debt. So Jesus is saying, take this wealth that was generated by unjust means and use it to make friends. Use it to establish a relationship in which the other person's experience of mercy and debt forgiveness will mean they welcome you into their homes as a friend. Because in doing so, you are placing them and yourself within the realm of the kingdom of God not the kingdom of men. You are living in alignment with the economy of God, not the economics of Adam Smith. So this parable then is about how our relationship to the wealth created by the imperfect and unjust economic systems we presently live in affects our relationships with other people. And Jesus is so very clever because he knows that we are profoundly bewildered by him telling us to take as our model a dishonest man and not the rich man, who, let's face it, we mostly admire because he's successful and he drives a nice car and, you know, who, who we think acted so honourably in not calling the police or making a big fuss and who's been an upstanding citizen and who serves on the boards of various not-for-profits and who hasn't broken any laws. We don't want to think about the ways that his lifestyle is actually funded through the efforts of tenant farmers locked into a cycle of impossible hardship. How he makes his money isn't our business, or so we think. See, Jesus knows that we're happy calling out the selfish manager and his dishonest ways while turning a blind eye to the deeper, underlying forces that sustain and support the actions of the rich man. So Jesus tells a story 
that turns our expectations upside down because that's the nature of the kingdom he's ushering in. A kingdom where the first shall be last and where the least is given the seat of honour and where the greatest is the one who lays down their life for the sake of their friends. Jesus is challenging us to not be conformed to the unjust parts of our imperfect economic and social systems, but to be transformed by the values of God's kingdom of justice and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And to recognise that living in God's kingdom looks at times like you're doing something a bit wrong, but that's the very moment when you're doing it right because that's the moment you begin to honour a higher set of values than the rules of our broken human system. Are you feeling the whiplash yet? I know I am. Well, how then are we to behave? How especially are we to behave towards those that our imperfect and unjust systems place huge debts and strain upon? Well, Jesus says we should forgive those debts and we should reduce the strain. Forgive, even if it's not your money. Reduce the strain by doing what you can. Boldly take every opportunity before you to reduce the burden of those our systems have pushed to the bottom of the pile and are holding there. And I want to say back to Jesus, Jesus, that's not reasonable. And Jesus gently responds, checkmate. Because Jesus knows the question we have about the forgiveness of debts often puts the question of reasonableness front and centre. We ask ourselves, well, given the, given the circumstances, is it reasonable to forgive this debt? Did the person do everything they possibly could to avoid getting into the debt in the first place? Did they do everything reasonably possible to get out of the debt? Can they be reasonably expected to not get back into the debt, into the same situation in the future if it gets forgiven? We tend to reduce the question of reasonableness to the individual actions of the person who owes the debt. But this parable turns that upside down and says in an unjust and unreasonable system, there is never a reasonable reason not to forgive. I did warn you, this is Jesus' most difficult and bewildering parable. But I have to say, it doesn't come out of the blue. This parable of the dishonest manager comes straight after the three famous lost parables. The parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the parable of the lost or the prodigal son. In each of those three parables, Jesus has been talking to the Pharisees about the character of God, a God who risks all so that all may be saved, a, a God who rejoices over a sinner who repents, a God who runs out to embrace and celebrate the wayward child returned home. Each of these three parables demonstrates the unreasonableness of God's character, how God's love for us is so wonderfully generously, unreasonably loving and gracious and merciful. Just think about the grace and forgiveness extended by the father to the prodigal son. 
it's so unreasonable as to be almost embarrassing. The father allows the son to extract his inheritance while he's still alive so he can throw it all away on wine, women and whatever. And when the money runs out, the father just doesn't, doesn't just welcome him home. He weeps with joy, restoring the son to his place of honour and throwing the biggest party you've ever seen. We love these parables so much because we find so much comfort in the unreasonable love and grace of God. We could wax lyrical for days about how great, gracious God is who forgives our debts and remembers our sins no more. But then in the parable of the dishonest manager, Jesus turns to us, his disciples, and he looks us in the eyes and says, those of you who have received the unreasonable grace and forgiveness from God need to go and do likewise. Go and extend forgiveness. Go and do it with the same abandonment, the same generosity and unreasonableness as God. Do to others as God has done to you. Because in doing so, when this age ends and the money's all gone, and the kingdom of God has come in power and in full, what will remain is that which really matters. All of the people who have experienced the unreasonable grace and mercy of God through your actions and were so transformed by the experience that it caused them to put their trust in God will welcome you as a friend into their eternal homes. Listen to the difficult but life-giving words of Jesus. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the riches of injustice so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into their eternal homes. Amen.